Hello, and welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast, episode 13. This is Adam coming to you from Austin, Texas. And on this episode, we're going to cover a whole bunch of things. A whole mess of things. But uh, the movies I would like to focus on today are two, two documentaries specifically about the Norwegian rock band Turbo Negro. Who is Turbo Negro? I'm glad you asked. Um, Turbo Negro. Turbo Negro is a Norwegian rock band active from 1989 to 1998 and 2002 to present. According to Wikipedia, um, the band combines glam rock, punk rock, and hard rock into a self-described, quote, death punk musical style. But the movie is, well, not the movie, the band is so much more than a simple Wikipedia description. It is, it's one of those bands that's almost like, uh, there's like a philosophy, like a mythology around it that's so deep and personal and intense for people. What can you compare it to? You know, you can compare it to, uh, you know, in terms of fandom to KISS, like the KISS Army. You know, the KISS Army is like, that's like the... Super fan thing, you know. Ever since, uh, what should I call it? I bought a book for a uh, old buddy of mine, like way back when. He was a huge Kiss fan, and um, I think it was for his birthday. I got him this book, and it was specifically about Kiss fans who made Kiss fanzines. And that was a thing that was kind of a big deal. Um, and there was one in particular called Kisser. And Kisser was... Um, is It was back in the day where fanzines really kind of had a... They carried a lot of weight. Uh, you can really get a lot of information about a band or a genre of bands or a t- particular music scene. Uh, through fanzines than you could anywhere else because mainstream news you wouldn't you wouldn't hear about you well, you certainly wouldn't hear about most punk bands you know punk bands anything you knew about them was sort of a regional thing uh, that maybe you know you know somebody who knows somebody that's in a kind of bigger local punk band or whatever metal band or whatever and you just kind of all that all you really know about them is sort of stories from people but fanzines um could tell personal anecdotes and stories about concerts and things like that that really you couldn't get that information anywhere else there certainly weren't podcasts there wasn't 
I mean, even bands as big as Kiss, like you wouldn't get much information about Kiss and their relationship with their fans. Um, you know what? Here, there's a documentary called uh, "Kiss Loves You." I think that's what it's called. I'm pretty sure. Someone out there, if I'm wrong, you can uh, you can write to me. Write to my mother's house in Manteca, California, and tell her that her son's uh, mistaken about the title of the kiss documentary that he thinks is called kiss loves you. And it's a documentary that was, I want to say, Oh God, I haven't seen kiss loves you since 2020. And I don't know how mentally sharp I was or or how, you know, uh, (laughs) my, my memories of 2020 is just a giant blur. It was, it's just fishing and drinking low calorie beer. That's all I remember. But there's a documentary called Kiss Loves You, and it's about uh, the f- the fandom of Kiss and people who love Kiss and have Kiss conventions or something like that. It's it's like it's almost like that documentary Trekkies about Star uh, Star Trek fans, um, or the People versus George Lucas about uh, the fans of Star Wars. But uh, this one was about Kiss, and I think it was. Pre reunion tour, I think that was like 2000, something like that. Kiss, but um, Turbo Negro is a lot like it's almost like they're almost like Star Wars fans pre prequels, you know. There's fandom, and then there's like uh, modern day. You know, there's there's like pre and post when Disney took over. I would see even pre and post when the prequels to Star Wars came out kind of fandom. There was people who grew up with the original Star Wars movies, and that's all there was. You had the Star Wars movies. You had the Star, Star Wars holiday special that you could probably pick up at a convention somewhere, you know, on, on a really crappy VHS or something. But other than that, uh, you had comics, you had novels, and then you really didn't have much else. You just had those three movies, and that's all you had. And with within those three movies, there was such fan love that developed. Like, that's how the band Turbo Negro is. If I had to compare it to something that someone can kind of wrap their mind around, if they're someone who's not into rock music in particular, especially rock music from like the 90s and 2000s, that isn't grunge or isn't kind of, you know, uh, past its prime hair metal or something. (laughs) Turbo Negro came around at a time where maybe like punk wasn't. I don't want to say popular because punk was still around, but it had this. You could tell there was a new era coming around because by the time the 90s came around and Turbo Negro was hitting their peak in uh, the late 90s, not to say not that I'm saying that they they, you know, whatever their whenever their peak was, but I'm saying when they're. When they made the biggest impact um, and got started to become well known, it was like in the late '90s, and around that time, there was bands, punk bands from the '80s, 
late seventies and eighties who were now the old guard who were still going on tour, making albums, but it was sort of, you know, it's one of those things where you felt like their best albums were behind them, you know, and that's, you know, there's a lot of bands, especially back in, back in the day and hardcore bands that like I really liked. And I went and went and saw live and they were probably touring a new album, but, and you know, the albums were good, but they weren't those first albums that just had the ferociousness of the original shit, you know? And, um, it's, you know, among Turbo Negro fans, which I consider myself one of them, I I think that's a point of debate of, you know, what is your favorite era of Turbo Negro? So, I mean, I mean, uh, my nostalgia lies in the, their, when the Apocalypse Dudes album came out, and that came out in the late 90s, but... <laughs> my dog's here hey honey you want to come in or out <laughs> she just opened the door with her little flat pug face and it's just do you want to come in or do you want to stay out there you can't stand in the doorway come on want to come in no all right i'll make you a deal i'll leave you can just stand there <laughs> the the door look puppy you and me, we have an open door policy. The door is open when you come through it, okay? Okay. Where was I? Yes. So, when I came into... When I became aware of Turbo Negro, it was... Um, God, I want to say it was 2000 and... Three, I think. I want to say 2003, maybe 2002. But the first album that I was aware of was the Ask Cobra album. And, I mean, by that point, Ask Cobra was already... I mean, that came out in 96. So, that came out when I was, you know, a young man in high school. And... I was already like into punk rock and I was, you know, I was into rock music, but Turbo Negro just didn't, it didn't come my, cross my path yet. But, um, I can't become aware of, I became aware of Turbo Negro and I want to say like 2002, but it was, it was specifically the Ask Cobra album, which is up to that point, I haven't heard punk music that sounded that way and even the album cover of ass cobra it has this it has the look of like it looks like beach boys pet sounds but the band photo itself is this black and white photo of these guys that look like they'd be a gang from like you know, a clockwork orange or something. There was something 
spooky about it. It's like these these guys standing in the dark with a German shepherd. There was something oddly ominous about it. And the Ask Cobra album is unbelievably good and there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of hits on uh, that album that like really you know fan favorite type of type of stuff and then i became aware of apocalypse dudes and that changed everything that album and that was from 98 so I mean, in my estimation, from when I look back at the 90s and I look at punk music and I look at Ass Cobra and Apocalypse Dudes, those two Turbo Negro albums were so, so ahead of of everything else I was listening to, there was a lot, there was, there was a next level feel to those two albums where, you know, when you get into music and you get into punk music or you get into like whatever you're into, if it's indie rock or whatever, you know, if you dig deep enough, you know, you, you feel like every, the deeper you go, the more you ascend in your knowledge because you feel like you're ascending to finding out about cooler and better shit. You know, it's like Scientology. <laughs> Except once you get to like Xenu level Scientology, once you get to Tom Cruise level Scientology, but in but in but in punk rock, like I felt when I discovered Turbo Negro, that's when I was like, okay, I'm stepping into Tom Cruise level shit right now. So, you know, for if if that illustrates in any way, if you're a punk fan or, you know, whatever you're into, hardcore or metal even, like, there's something appealing about those two albums that sort of all the sort of subgenres of underground music, all those sort of, there's sort of this consensus of that Turbo Negro is the shit, at least from people who I've come across who are, you know, into more underground music. But those two albums, Apocalypse Dudes from 98 and Ass Cobra from 96, just massive, massive game-changing albums for me at a t it was and they and I heard them at a time where I needed to hear them you know there's and there's very few albums in the 90s that I feel that way about uh, you know it's like 90s early 2000s I heard a lot of music I went to a lot of shows and Nothing, nothing really had longevity for me, but Turbo Negro did. I mean, I mean, in terms of something from the '90s or early 2000s that I still listen to now, in 2001, 2021, like I, I'd probably say like 
feel the darkness um, by Poison Idea. Poison Ideas Feel the Darkness, which was, uh, it came out in the early 90s, but it was re-released in like the kind of mid to late 90s, but that album is unbelievably good. And it's one of those things where I've heard Poison Idea in the past, like I've heard their old stuff, but when Feel the Darkness came out, it was like they hit the band themselves hit this level, this new level of like they've they have sharpened and polished their sword to perfection and feel the darkness was that level of perfection, at least for me. But when I look back at albums from back in the day, like, you know, uh, Apocalypse Dudes and uh, Ass Cobra and even Party Animals. That came out in uh, 2004, 2005. And, and when Party Animals came out, that's like after Turbo Negro had their whole hiatus. Yeah, 2005. And it was one of those things where everything I knew about Turbo Negro, I heard like from someone else. You know, you'd be talking about music with people because back in those days... Maybe, maybe like, there was a period of time, like, I didn't have cable. I had a TV. I had a VHS and DVD collection. I had a lot of records. And I had a landline phone. Like, I, um, I didn't even have a cell phone in, you know, probably between 2003 and five. I didn't even bother. I just got a landline and an answering machine in my house. I just was not interested in the idea that anyone can just get a hold of me whenever the hell they wanted to like leave a message and I will get back to you. <laughs> like oh, those are good times. I might go back to having a landline, especially if there's any kind of end of the world snow blizzard that hits Texas again. And you know, people's internet doesn't work. Uh, a landline might be a pretty damn good idea. What was that? I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before, but I was at Dan's Hamburger, which is, I need to get them to be a sponsor of the podcast because they have some damn good burgers at Dan's Hamburger. And I was sitting next to a booth where two elderly men were having lunch together. One of them was talking about during the blizzard, he was the only one in his neighborhood who had any internet connection and like no one's cell phone worked, but he had a phone because he had a landline and his landline worked. <laughs> so word got around the neighborhood. People were like, can I use your phone? <laughs> so I was like, oh, man. See, lesson being people, you can learn things from older people. You can really learn things. Anyways, that's, that's basically how my old apartment was where you would just sit around. And I remember sitting around, you would just, we would just put on records. We just put on, record and just listen to music, you know, and we'd sit there and smoke cigarettes and, you know, drink beer and, and just bullshit about life. But we would just sit there and just listen to music. And Turbo Negro came up often because there was very little information about them. There was sort of like this mystique around them. So, and at that time before, it's before party animals came out, uh, 
you know, some of my more nerdy music friends, uh, people whose opinion I really respected and stuff were just like, yeah, man, this, this weird Norwegian band with a weird <laughs> band name and they're just doing these badass albums and, and their singer had like a, you know, he had to go to like a mental institution and, uh, it was this whole crazy kind of mystique around the band. Just, you know, it seemed like they, they hit their, you know, they, they hit their end. And then, you know, after, after that, there was just nothing. And then party animals came out in 2005. I think it was 2005. Am I mistaken? I'm pretty sure that was 2005. <clears throat> Anyways, actually, that might have been 2004 because I saw Turbo Negro at the House of Blues in Los Angeles uh, in West Hollywood on Sunset Boulevard. And they were doing two nights. Um, they were playing, having a Mondo Generator and a little unknown band called the Eagles of Death Metal opening for them. So they were doing two nights and it was, I saw the second night. It was December 20th, uh, 2004. So, and it was for the Party Animals album. And to my, <laughs> to the best of my recollection, uh, you know, that was that was easily one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. It's one of the greatest live, you know, live anything I've ever seen. And there's and that's another conversation I have with, you know, with people who are friends of mine who are like music, like music people, people who like music and you know, they talk you talk about like like what was the best concert you've ever seen? And, you know, like, but it, it, yeah, for me, that house of blue show, that turbo Negro show was way, way up there. It was, it's up there with like, when I saw Iggy pop, it's up there when I saw uh parliament funkadelic and uh, when they had, they were doing this tour where they had a, a lot of the original members of Parliament Funkadelic uh, playing. And, I mean, it was crazy. They had, like, 30-something people on stage. Like, I, I couldn't even keep... I couldn't even count how many people were on stage. And that... I mean, that show... I mean, Turbo Negro, Iggy Pop, Parliament Funkadelic, that's, like, the top three, you know? And it's kind of hard to say which one was the best one, but unbelievably good show and i do actually really i have this amazing like screen print poster this large screen print poster from that show um that i've been meaning to get framed for like 20 years but maybe i'll get around to that this year <laughs> i have the wall space to do it now so maybe that's something i'll do i'll get i'll get around to that maybe <laughs> Endless procrastinating. But, yes, uh, the just when you thought, 
you know, in, in terms of making a comeback when Party Animals came out, it's just unbelievable. Like, just when you think, like, a band that, you know, had their had their peak and then they broke up and they're now coming back, but then they hit you with a solid-as-fuck rock album. And Party Animals is almost like... It has, like, like a lot of great, epic, classic rock stuff going on in there. You know, there's stuff in there that reminds me of, like, old Van Halen. There's stuff in there that reminds me of uh, REO Speedwagon, stuff like that, like, musicianship-wise, but still has this crazy irreverent, poetic, trashy, John Waters humor. (laughs) And, you know, that's... And actually, uh, Turbo Negro, their fan base, uh, the ones that are insanely dedicated to them, there is a fan club, you know, that's similar. um, I believe it... um, might have been their bass player. I think it was interviewed once where he's like, uh, well, Kiss has the Kiss Army, so Turbo Negro's going to have a Navy. So that's what their fan club essentially is, and it's called the Turbo Jugend. So it means the Turbo Youth. And the Turbo Jugend is worldwide. I mean, they are if they could be in Antarctica, they would be. Like they are all over the world. And at this point, I mean, who knows how many members there are, but when you, even when I went, when I went and saw them in LA, I mean, that and everyone in the turbo, you can has like a jacket, like they have a cut, <laughs> like, like, like they're, you know, like a motorcycle club or like, <laughs> black label society or something like like they're they're denim trucker jackets with like patch on the back you know so it's like when you see that jacket you know who you're who you're dealing with and it's and it has the city of wherever that particular turbo yukon's from and at that show it was it didn't really dawn on me how massive this band was I mean, there were jackets there from Germany and Japan and Italy and all over California, uh, all over the United States, really. And and I just remember it being very fun and sexy. Everyone just seductively danced and grinded very close to each other and, and jumped up and down and had a good old time and sang along and stuff like that. You know, it wasn't... <laughs> Wasn't, they're not really a moshy band, you know. But yeah, the the Turbo Yugend is every there's there's a chapter in Austin, Texas, you know, and they're just rabid, rabid fans, and they have a the community is you know far and wide, you know, people travel across the world and party with other Turbo Yugend people and um 
I actually started a Turbo Yugen chapter in Santa Barbara. I think it was before I actually saw Turbo Negro. And it was myself. It was, let's see, it was me. It was this, and these two other guys, this guy Dave and this, and Steve. And the both of us, uh, the three of us were actually in a band together. Um, and who else? <laughs> and my ex, let's see, my ex, ex-girlfriend. So, who was like, I don't know. She was just there to party and. I don't know, uh, solicit sexual favors to, you know, the guys of the uh, the group we ran around in. That's kind of the sad reality of, of it. But she was a sweet girl. And so she was technically in the Turbo Yugen Santa Barbara chapter as well. But, you know, like all of us were like broke. Like you want to talk about old punk rock shit. Like, you know, like I didn't even have the internet. <laughs> I didn't even have a fucking computer in my house. I was like, it was me and like these three other people, and we were we were all broke. Like none of us had a, a Turbo Yugen jacket, which I'm sure Turbo Yugen members would argue. I mean, through the lens of like a 2021 member. They would argue that we weren't really a, a Turbo Yugen. But it's like, I don't even, how much were the jackets back then? I think they were something like 140 or $60 US. And back then, that was a insane amount of money. That like 140 for a fucking jacket? Like I get like, once you get your jacket, that's like, that's like, that's your fucking turbo negro jacket and shit. Like I, like I understood that, but I was like, dude, I don't have that kind of money laying around. Like I was, I was throwing fucking punk shows and hardcore shows and, uh, a fucking bar in downtown Santa Barbara. And, you know, I was barely making any money from that. I was working at a children's hospital <laughs> where I was barely getting paid for that. And, you know, was, I was fucking broke, dude. You know, so in in a way, we were like the punkest fucking Turbo Yugen, you know, in California, easily. You know, we were, you know, like, but, you know, that was a long time ago. And, uh, and I'm not terribly social either. Like, even though I was, you know, I was, I mean, I actually was fairly social even during those times. But, it, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm, I don't like, big groups of people. I'm just like, I, you know what it is? It's not that I don't like big groups of people. It's like, I, I detest herd mentality and, uh, camaraderie, like people like singing together or like you, when you, when you, when you see a soccer match and you hear the crowd singing some like, Oh, like some, some fucking, song in unison like it just makes my skin crawl i just i don't know but uh when i went to the turbo uh negro show i really didn't have those feelings i like felt like i was i was part of this thing which gave me fuzzy feelings and everything like that but i'm i'm still too much of a i'm still too much of a lone wolf 
I'm a loner, Dottie. A rebel. You know? So that's how I roll. But uh, I'm still a, you know, still a fan of Turbo Negro. And But they, um, during this time, um, I, my God, I lo- this might actually be worth some money. So this, this DVD I'm holding here, I have had since I think 2002, like shortly after I heard about Turbo Negro, I came up, I don't even remember where I got this from. I might've got this from a record store or something, but it's the original Turbo Negro, the movie from, I believe 2002. It was put out by Bizcore. Um, I guess it's just Bizcore Records, but the company Bizcore, I remember, um, came out with a few uh, Cox Bar, if you're into the English punk band, oi band, however you want to describe them. Uh, Cox Bar, awesome band, amazingly good. They still play. They're old as fuck, and they haven't lost a step. And um, They're a band where you, you know... Their early shit was unbelievably good. You know, the fucking, like, Shock Troops is still, I'll listen to Shock Troops. You know, that's an unbelievably good album. And anyone who's, like, getting into punk music and they're kind of in those, like, I don't know, lack of a better term, kind of starter punk bands, like the Ramones or the Misfits and stuff like that, those bands are great, you know, and they're fun to listen to. And eventually it's, like, you know, you hear about Cox Bar and it's, there's a whole other level of energy to Cox Bar. And they put out some al- uh, albums with Bizcore, I want to say, in around the same time Turbo Negro was really getting big. And let's see, they have, oh my God, there was an album called Guilty as Charged and there was one called was it called 12 monkeys? <laughs> I know there's a movie called the uh, 12 monkeys, but was that the name of the album? Let me look it up. Was it called 12 monkeys? No, it was called two monkeys. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. Bizcore put out some, some of that like later, Cox Bar albums, and even those are fucking really good. They're just a solid band. Like, some bands could just keep cranking out good shit. You know, they don't get cynical and lame, or, you know, they're, or they try to evolve in a way that kind of like rubs their fans right, uh, the wrong way. Like, yeah. But yeah, Coxbar, the Bizcore years. I don't know what fucking label they're on now, but anyways, um, let's see. This was put out by Bizcore and uh, Burning Heart Records. And I'm going to read the back of the box here. In late 1998, a group of denim-clad Norwegians disappeared in the darkness this award-winning rockumentary is based on footage that was found in suburban Oslo a year later and includes raw and rare live material, 
exclusive on the road lameness <laughs> and all videos ever made by the world's favorite death punk ensemble. Additional 40 minutes of never be seen, never before seen material. Yes. On the front cover we have, they had talent, they had guts, but they lost it all on the road to darkness. So I watched the shit out of this, uh, this DVD and I'm amazed it's still in pretty good shape. I think I got some paint on the actual disc from probably when I was painting one of my old apartments or something, but by the time this movie came out, Turbo Negro just broke up. So a lot of the footage from from this uh, Turbo Negro the movie, a lot of it is compiled footage of concerts. It's uh, compiled footage from uh, television interviews. <clears throat> and according to IMDb, Turbo Negro the movie compiles nearly 100 minutes of Turbo Negro video footage culled from various sources for promo clips for, among others, Denim Demon and Get It On. Those are, those are music videos. Uh, several band features that were broadcasted by German Viva TV during 1997 and 1998. Live recordings from the Darkness Forever tour and the Farewell show in Oslo. Plus, lots of obscure on-the-road snippets from Turbo's private archives that were all recorded in Norway, Germany, Spain, and USA between 1995 and 1998 at various locations. Yeah, that's a pretty good description of it. It's kind of a video collage of the band. Like, you really get a sense of what the band is and what, like, what kind of a band they are, what kind of fans they have, and what their public image is. And, you know, it's, it's, Kind of all over the place, but in the best way possible. And I really, yeah, and obviously I'm talking about it, so obviously I recommend it. I mean, if I had to recommend a album to listen to, like here, listen to this. This is sort of a, this is a, this is like mandatory Turbo Negro. I'd say uh, listen to the Apocalypse Dudes album. Like, that's... Some of their biggest hits are on there. That album is unbelievably good. And... But yes, Turbo Negro the movie. I mean, you really get a... Uh, the, it's, it's kind of... It's sort of... 
spinal tap ish. It like like it's almost like this is spinal tap, but on accident. You know, it's it's all these candid, funny moments um, that are, but they're actually real. <laughs> so I don't know how hard this is to find nowadays. But, it, I mean, if you collect DVDs and Blu-rays and VHS, and you can get a hold of the Turbo Negro movie, I'd say check it out. There's, It reminds me a lot of the band X. Uh, they, there, were, there was a documentary called The, the Unheard Music. And, but The Unheard Music is it's basically a collection of X music videos, really. But it's fun to watch, especially if you like X. And Turbo Negro, the movie is similar to that, but there's a lot of sort of vignettes and candid footage of them backstage and and whatnot. And uh, yeah, I I guess I guess that's that's a that's a I'm trying to like compare it to things that maybe you've seen and would like and then that would compel you to watch this you know what i mean so i'd say you know if you like um i don't know if you like this is spinal tap if you like the decline of western civilization part two the metal years or even like a heavy metal parking lot or uh, the rolling stones give me shelter documentary like, I think you would like Turbo Negro, the movie. And if you're already a fan, especially if you're like a fan of like their new stuff and you're haven't dived too deep into, you know, some of the older stuff or any of the documentaries, I would definitely recommend it. There's not much more to say about it. It's it's pretty good. So check it out. I just want to move on now to the second Turbo Negro documentary. Okay, so the next movie I want to talk about is Turbo Negro, The Res Erection, as opposed to Resurrection. This is Res Erection, like an erection. You get it? Do you get it? Okay, good. So this is... It's very nice packaging. It's a two DVD box set here. And let's see. Okay. So inside the inside of the nice little booklet that you get with uh, the movie, you get I'm the resurrection. I may steal your soul. I am fairly evil. I live for rock and roll. Could it be that Robbie Williams is also a Turbo Yugen member? Quite unlikely. But what he sings in his song, I Am the Resurrection, applies perfectly to the, resurrec- the resurrection of Hank von Helvete, who managed his way back from tragic figurehead to a true rock and roll ubermensch, as well as the return of the only really dangerous rock and roll band 
currently threatening the earth. Turbo fucking Negro. That's a that's a good that's a that's a good intro right there. So yeah, the inside booklet has all types of uh, interesting anecdotes pertaining to you know their reunion and here's one. In 2002, as the seemingly doubtful possibility of a reunion actually became a reality, there also became apparent a relieving certainty. The comeback was also a triumphal procession. The unstable bunch of flipped-out death punks who grown into a sovereign unit. After four years of abstinence, Turbo Negro are stronger than ever before. Because now they know their weaknesses. And because they know that admitting such weaknesses is a sign of strength, the collective stage fright documented on this DVD before the reunion shows at the Court Holtzfred and Bazaar Festivals proved to be totally unwarranted. The band delivered... Inspired and thrilling performances and the audiences having grown tremendously in the interim were really for some darkness like never before. Not only Hank was visibly moved by the explosion like increase of fans in his absence, but faithful Turbo Yugen representatives having traveled from all over the world also had tears in their eyes. So, yeah, very nice, very nice presentation. But, yeah, Turbo Negro, the resurrection is after four years of the band being broken up, they're sync, they're, they're sync. After four years of being broken up, their singer Hank von Helvete now uh, having recovered from his drug addiction to heroin and living on a secluded Norwegian island. And in his words, was like Napoleon living in exile on St. Helena. Uh, living on this small island, working at a, a museum that focuses on Norwegian fishing and has a radio show. And living a nice, quiet existence. Meanwhile, the other members of Turbo Negro decided to pull their gear out of storage and get a practice space together and start rehearsing songs. And at a certain point, they just they asked themselves, well, what about Hank? And the story goes that uh, the bass player Happy Tom travels out to um, travels out to where Hank is and checks in on him and see how he's doing and if he's up to playing some Turbo Negro shows, you know. And he agrees, and they get back into the practice studio and. You know, 
Hank has a pretty tough go at it at first, being thoroughly out of practice and uh, and thoroughly uh, under the physical conditioning required to uh, sing in such a band. But eventually gets his shit together and the band goes and does some giant festival shows, some giant reunion festival shows to thousands of screaming fans and you know it's a it's a it's a great comeback story it's a triumphant comeback story and it ends on a it ends on a happy note actually it's it's a very satisfying documentary for turbo negro fans really and i think anyone who i think anyone who's into rock music and into documentaries and or maybe you're just interested in people or specifically musicians who suffer from mental or chemical addictions getting their shit together and going back out and playing music in front of people again or recording new music again you know it's to me that produces warm fuzzy feelings you know, a story of redemption and friendship and uh, not letting your fans down. And uh, the, uh, movies like that, documentaries like that, that I can recommend would be like uh, Last Days Here. And it's a movie about um, the band this like doom metal band called uh, Pentagram. And uh, specifically about their singer, Bobby Liebling, who uh, dealt with alcohol and drug addiction, homelessness, and all, all the things that come with that kind of lifestyle and you know, struggling to keep Pentagram even in existence, you know, and after a long hiatus, he ends up getting the band back together. And with the help of Phil and Salmo, <laughs> they're able to get this, this fucking cool band up and running again. And Bobby gets his shit together. And just like Hank and Turbo Negro does and gets back out there on the road. And, um, finds love, you know, finds a partner in life and you know, that's that's good shit. I like that. Another one I'd definitely recommend is um uh you're going to miss me. And it's a documentary about Rocky Erickson who passed away uh not long ago. And in in Austin, Texas. Uh, a real Texas psychedelic rock, garage rock hero, innovator, pioneer. And he was another guy who dealt with mental illness and isolation, codependent family members. Um, and eventually, with the help of his younger brother, was able to find his music again and go out in front of this 
decades long buildup of fans and going around the world and playing in front of your fans. I've been dying to see you live and never thought they ever would. You know, that's how Turbo Negro Resurrection is. And uh, I, I don't know, I'm a sucker for documentaries like that. Just people who fall, uh, musicians who fall on hard times but are able to, like, pull it together and, you know, get back out there to their fans. Like, it's, I dig that shit. So there's there's a handful of movies you can go check out. Go go check out those movies. They're they're fun. But uh you know, and and like I said recently uh yes, recently singer of Turbo Negro Hank von Helvete, also known as Hank von Hell, born Hans Eric Divik Husby. Uh, he passed away on November nineteenth of this month, he was 49 years old. As of the recording of this episode, which is, it's Friday. It's Black Friday. It's the day after Thanksgiving. It's Friday, November 26, 2021. So, um, there is no known cause of death, although a statement has been put out um, representing uh Mr. Husby, and it was, uh, he, d- he did not commit suicide. There were speculation that he committed suicide. And, um, you know, it's a rep- representative of, you know, his, uh, his interest, uh, you know, came out and said that he did not commit suicide despite the rumor. So, I mean, I'm glad to hear that. But uh, it's sad. He was 49 years old, you know, and he was a he was a unique, talented frontman. It's a bummer. It really is. But that's uh, you know, the dead rock star. It's the you know, it's a story that's been going on my whole life. <laughs> I'm sure long after I'm gone, you know, there will always be unique, creative rock star dudes who die too young, you know. I don't like the term, like, they died before their time. Because how do you know when it's someone's fucking time, you know? It's like, it's your time is is your time. When you're, when you're, when it's your time to go, it's your time to go. And it doesn't, you know, it's it's nice to think everyone will live a long, fruitful life, but you know, it's not everybody does. So, yes. So to Hans Eric Divakusby, uh, I salute you. Rest in peace. You made tons of music that affected my life very positively and uh, you know and and turbo negro still lives on um you know and his legend will live on as well so 
if Turbo Negro's ever in your town, go check them out. You'll have a good time. They're fun shows, and they're usually inhabited by pretty fun people. So, unlike some other kind of more aggressive music <laughs> shows, I don't think you need to worry about, you know, getting hit in the face with a bottle or something like that at Turbo Negro show. Um, anyhow, I just wanted to bring up uh, those two documentaries. They're really good, and I was really sad that Hank died and everything. So, you know. Um, let's see. What else has been going on? Thanksgiving happened. That was fun. Um, in reaction to the uh, inflation and the cost of food going up higher and possible turkey shortages and all that sort of thing, I thought to myself, well, you know, I might as well save turkeys for real, for families. You know, I, I had a small group. I didn't go out to California to see my family this year. I, I had a very, it was just uh, me and a couple of friends. We stayed at my place and uh, had a very lovely dinner. And um, instead of getting a turkey, I got an even more expensive uh, dry-aged ribeye bone-in. And we had that with all the good shit, with taters and Brussels sprouts and bacon and really good Italian wine. And we had apple pie and we had pecan pie and and a, and a big old dose of indigestion at the end of it. It was nice. And uh, so I hope you had a good Thanksgiving as well, you know. This is like the, well, I don't know about 2020, but I think this year people are having holidays again, you know, the weirdness of masks and getting your 10th booster shot and social distancing and shit. I think people are pretty, I think people are beyond that at this point. So people can get back to actually, um, enjoying their family and friends over a, a nice meal. So, I mean, me personally, I didn't fucking stop anything like I had Christmas I had Thanksgiving I had Fourth of July I had family get-togethers where we were hugging and kissing and enjoying each other's company and shit because because I refuse to live in fear okay I will not live in fucking fear you know family gatherings should exist no matter what Spending quality time with your friends should happen no matter what the fucking CDC tells you. So, something to think about. You know, I, you know, uh, life is short and people can go at any time. You should really spend as, as much quality time with people you care about as you possibly can. And, um, you know, that's what I did this year. So after we ate a big fat fucking meal, I took a nap and then, uh, we went out to Alamo draft house and saw house of Gucci, 
the newest Ridley Scott film. And it was pretty good. I was... I didn't think it was going to be bad, but I was dev- I was pleasantly surprised. Like I had no expectations going into it. I didn't even see a trailer. Um, I went with some friends uh, who uh, who actually used to work for Gucci, so they were <laughs> uh, one of them in particular had this absurdly gaudy Gucci trench coat jacket it looks like something conor mcgregor would wear to a fucking weigh-in or something just this oh my god um yeah i had to go see this movie and it was it was pretty good you know it had a really good cast it had uh adam driver as um you know he was one of the um it's about the gucci family you know it's not so much necessarily about the Gucci brand or anything like that, but it's about the family who used to run it because apparently it's no members of the Gucci family run Gucci anymore. So this is kind of back in the, um, back in the day, 70s, 80s, 90s. And uh, Adam driver plays one of the Gucci, one of the Gucci children who, um, his, you know, uh, I mean, spoilers, but I mean, this is all true. This is all real life shit. It's like based on a true story. Uh, but his character ends up getting, uh, assassinated. Uh, he gets, he gets whacked by, uh, his angry ex-wife played by Lady Gaga. Um, you know, she basically gets squeezed out of the family and, um, you know, she is a she is a woman scorned, and she decides to have fucking Adam Driver murdered, and uh, and indeed he does. And you you know you realize it in the beginning of the movie, like they 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 kind of spoil the murder for people like me who had no idea about the Gucci family's story at all. But there's a scene of Adam Driver riding a bike through Italy, and he's pulling up to this building, and. You know, he's walking up these stairs and you hear uh, you hear a voice say, Signor Gucci. And you see him kind of like look over his shoulder and then like it cuts to black and then the movie begins. But I'm like, oh, someone shot him immediately after. That had to be what happened. You know, the movie had almost a um, Goodfellas feel to it. You know, it had a lot of like eccentric characters that were all working in this like power struggle a it, you know it if you like goodfellas or you like the sopranos or whatever it's like every person in the movie had something at stake when it came to the this the the their their stake in the gucci uh empire and uh let's see Adam Driver's father was played by Jeremy Irons. You know, it's Jeremy Irons and uh, Al Pacino. They're like the two main Gucci older siblings who rule over everything. And Al Pacino's son is uh, Jared Leto in a fat suit. He looks like uh, David Crosby. But I'll say, I mean... 
everyone's obsessed with like Lady Gaga transitioning into some like brilliant actress and this idea that people are just like, oh, pop singers could just do everything because like because they're talented in one thing that makes them instantly talented in like other things. And I don't I don't prescribe to that idea. Like she was fine in the movie. Like she had a convincing Italian accent, I guess, and you know, it but um but Jared Leto stole the fucking show. Like his character was so over the top. And in a otherwise dry like it was as dry and um I don't know just not funny as as it, it's like a soap opera. But the movie had all of these moments that were sort of like I don't think they were unintentionally funny. Like I think it was one of those things where Ridley Scott was really good at capturing good performances uh, that were so over the top that they just had to stay in the movie. And Jared Leto's character was fucking ridiculously funny. Everything from his accent to his his over the top mannerisms and his character is he's the son of uh, Al Pacino and he's um he's kind of the Fredo of the family. He's kind of like the fuck up. He's kind of the loudmouth fuck up and he's good natured and cares about his family, but he's just he's devoid of talent, business acumen, uh self awareness. Like he's not meant to lead and run a company like Gucci, even though he feels like he can or should, or he has a birthright to it. And, you know, it's even Al Pacino turns in a really good performance. Has some, his character was pretty funny. Al Pacino's character in this kind of reminds me of my grandfather, actually, just kind of like a sharply dressed, funny, old family man guy who's just really genuinely all about family and all about like having a good time and, you know, you know, fucking killing it at business and shit. Like Al Pacino was really good in this. And, you know, it's this thing where he knows he has a fuck up son. He knows his son is a, is a, a fuck up, but he's his fuck up. So it's, he's cool with it, you know? And, He's on. He's the opposite of his brother Jeremy Irons, who's he's really yeah. He's really the opposite. It's one of those things where he's more obsessed with his legacy. He's sort of a former actor turned like you know king of this fashion empire sort of thing, and he he very much lives in the past. And from you know he still thinks of himself as like a you know, 30 year old movie star guy, but now he has a son and his son wants to marry Lady Gaga. And she's more of, you know, he sees her as like a commoner, kind of like a peasant and not, it feels like she's just with, um, you know, Adam Driver's character for, for money. And, and that, you know, that's very well the case. 
but it's one of those things where she she not only married Adam Driver for his money, but is also like loves him, and it's one of those things where she may have had good intentions, but. And in the movie, she even says, like, she's like, I'm not an ethical person, but I'm fair. And it's like, okay, well, that doesn't, <laughs> that's, I mean, I guess that works if you're Ralph from The Sopranos, but that doesn't fucking, that doesn't work in real life in a large fucking company like Gucci. And, um, yeah, this, this movie had kind of, um, you know, it kind of had, like, a feeling of like the movie blow with Johnny Depp and Paul Rubens and that one chick who used to date fucking Tom Cruise, Penelope Cruz. Um, it had sort of that long span of time with one family and seeing the sort of, uh, seeing the sort of uh, deterioration of the family and the business and watching business drive wedges into the loyalties and of these, of this family. And, you know, it was, it was, it was really interesting. The whole movie itself, I couldn't, like, I really couldn't tell if it was the movie, the whole movie looked like it was shot with natural lighting you know, like Barry Lyndon or something, but I don't know. It's hard to tell. Like every shot was sort of, it was rather outside or in a room with like really big windows and you can sort of see the outside and sunlight is beaming through and you can see like dust in the air. You can see like schmutz just sort of floating in there. And I don't know if like all that is fake or if that's real, but the whole movie had this like odd foggy, kind of blurriness to it. Like it almost had like a weird filter, kind of a smoky filter over everything. And um, I liked it a lot. It, it, it even had this like Italian giallo murder mystery feel to it. Not just because it was like a, a lot of it was shot in Italy. I assume it was most of it was shot in Italy. And that's what it looks like at least. But who knows? Movie magic is very magical nowadays. But it was it was wonderfully shot. The characters were I think they had pretty well developed everyone had a really good well developed character arc and you know where it all ended was like you know, it was like Goodfellas. It was like casino or something where it's just like Everyone was riding high. Everyone was high on the hog and making a lot of money. And there was, you know, a lot of sex and betrayal and backstabbing and all that sort of thing going on. And, you know, at the end of it, it was, you know, the moral was like people, if you let business drive a wedge, you know, through your family, you know, you will sell out your family members. You will betray your spouses and your siblings. And, you know, you'll just end up with a family of 
miserable assholes who live with regret and remorse and, you know, it's, I don't know. I don't know what exactly the cautionary tale is. I guess the cautionary tale is be honest and if you're going to be honest, try to be ethical and try to have principles because the second that your ego gets in the way, um, once it gets inter intertwined with your, with success and money and status, like when a push comes to shove, if it's money and status and, you know, position in the world, you know, uh, or people who care about you, who maybe don't completely feel like they can be on board with your program. Like you, you're going to go. People are going to choose greed. <laughs> oh, that's, that sucks. You know, people are going to choose greed and greed opens up a possibility of being audited by the, you know, being audited by the feds and, you know, divorce and child custody battles and people ratting on their family and getting them sent to prison and it's a whole fucking thing. A murder, you know, like it feels like a, it feels like a, it feels like an old Italian giallo, you know. There's even just mysterious men wearing black leather gloves, you know. <laughs> like it has all the little kind of hallmarks of films like that. And but uh it was it was surprisingly good, you know. Like I can't I can't even remember what was the last Ridley Scott movie I saw? Was it Covenant? What wasn't Alien Covenant a uh was that directed by Ridley Scott? I don't remember, but I don't know. It's nice to see um, Ridley Scott stepping away from Alien and then just doing some kind of project like this because it's it was really good. Um, I think I'd watch it again. You know, um, I think it was presented pretty well where I don't feel like I missed anything. Like I, I understand the story completely and, um, and I'm not saying it's as good as Goodfellas or Casino or anything like that, but it's, it's pretty good, you know, and, and it's got a lot of characters and a lot of moving pieces and a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot going on, but it's, it's juggled nicely. Really, Scott was able to keep a lot of p plates spinning um, throughout the whole movie. And, you know, it's like, I even liked at the, like, at the end, there was basically, like, you know, you see the conclusion of Adam Driver getting murdered. And, of course, Lady Gaga's character fucking gets caught. You know what I mean? Like, she conspired to have her fucking husband killed. <laughs> So she, um, and she has actually in her accomplices, which were the, um, two assassin guys and her fortune teller, she had this palm reader character played by Selma Hayek, who 
was sort of like acting as a guide to Lady Gaga's life over the years. And Selma Hayek's character is basically like, oh, well, if you hate your husband that much, like I know someone who would like, you can pay them to, to kill your husband. (laughs) Lady Gaga's like, sure. That sounds great. So, um, so when it came time to fucking, you know, take everyone to court, you know, there's a scene where fucking Salma Hayek's there and she's fucking going to prison. The two assassins go to prison and, uh, Lady Gaga's character goes to fucking prison. You know, they did not get away with it. Um, it's weird. Like I haven't seen Salma Hayek in a movie in a really long time. And, uh, she kind of looks like, uh. You know the the squad. It's like AOC and um, fucking uh, Ilhan Omar. Is that like like uh, and what was it? Uh, Ayanna Presley and Rashida Tlaib. And yeah, that's what Salma Hayek looks like. She looks like Rashida Tlaib now. It's kind of upsetting. You know, you go from. Desperado and from dusk till dawn to representative Rashida Tlaib. That's a bummer. But anyways, yeah, that was, that was a good Thanksgiving evening movie. And, um, yeah, I would say, uh, yeah, check it out. If you like, uh, Ridley Scott movies or if you like, uh, weird true life dramas about real people and scandal and things like that, but it's done well and it has good cast and, you know, it's, it's got things that like people who appreciate movies would appreciate, you know, everything is, everything looks good. It's well-written. It's well-acted. And, um, it's one of those things where a movie about tragedy and, betrayal and death and all like all these dark themes they're balanced quite well with humor you know especially uh, Jared Leto's character and Al Pacino and even Lady Gaga just her descent into jealous divorced madness like she basically becomes a stalker starts stalking Adam Driver and sending him threatening fucking answering machine messages and all this shit. And like, even those, the scene where they, she first meets the, uh, the hitmen and they're sort of negotiating how much it's going to cost and all this shit. Like even that was, there was moments of humor in just the, the banter and the dialogue. It's, I don't know moments like that remind me of like Goodfellas or like, uh, you know, like a Coen Brothers film, you know, like like Fargo or something like that, because um, you know it's you know, or even like a Tarantino film. It's like you have, you know, you have, you know, it's like just because someone's a hitman doesn't mean like I mean the the hitman sit around and talk about something, right? Like they're not just talking about being hitmen. So you have little scenes where it's just like, well, what are the hitmen talking about right now? And what is what is fucking Lady Gaga's fucking fortune teller like? What are they? They're like 
at a spa sitting in a mud bath and shit. And <laughs> you know, it's it's like some like Selma Hayek's character is basically like you know, uh fucking Mrs. Gucci over here like has she's got the money to pay me to come see me for my bullshit fucking psychic advice. Uh so like at some point you just know that when you see them at the like spa you're just like, oh, well, at some point, fucking, <laughs> you know, Selma Hayek's like, well, you know, like, uh, I could still give you psychic advice, but, like, let's go to this, like, how about you pay for me to go to a spa, and we can just, I can t- you know, talk about putting a spell on your ex-husband and shit. It's pretty funny. And uh, it's probably already streaming somewhere. But if you can see it in theaters, if you can get out to an Alamo Draft House or wherever... Yeah, go see House of Gucci. You know, it's you know, it's not something I would probably go see opening night, but you know, it was one of those things where um some friends invited me and they already bought me a ticket, so I kind of had to go and I was glad I'm I'm glad I did. It was pretty good. Anyway, let's see the uh I did, let's see, my last episode, episode 12, I I had a whole show written out. You know, I had a whole bunch of fucking movies and topics and shit I wanted to talk about, but I ended up just, um, I was invited over to, um, over to uh, a friend of mine's um, podcasting studio. He's He's got a... Uh, He's got a show on the um, Tetherball Academy uh, on the uh, Drinking Bros History channel on on YouTube and all places you get uh, podcasts. Um, Mr. Matt Cooper, host of the Iconoblast podcast, he's kind enough to uh, lend me his studio to go record the last episode and... You know, I had a whole show written out, but I ended up just, uh, you know, it was a thing where we were just sitting there fucking having some drinks and just talking. And then by the time it came down to like turn the microphones on and start doing the show, it was like fucking good old Matt Cooper was just like, hey man, we'll just, you know, just, just fucking free ball it. Just, you know, just, you know just talking to the microphone and I ended up just doing like an hour long ranting session about a whole bunch of movies that I saw recently that I just didn't particularly like. <laughs> Cause that happens if you watch enough movies on a regular basis, like you'll just, you'll hit a fucking stream of bad luck. You'll just hit, you'll just, you know, you'll hear about a movie or see a trailer that looks interesting, whatever. And then you watch it and you're just like, fuck that sucked. And then you see another movie and the same thing happens. Then. But, you know, I think my losing streak is over. You know, I wouldn't. House of Gucci was pretty good. But, but yeah, my episode 12, it's up. You can get it on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. And, um, yeah, it was just sort of a one hour unedited drunken rant from myself and uh it was fun i had a had a real good time and um 
I sat in on um, an episode of Iconoblast uh, recently, and I believe the episode is going up rather, I think it's going up tonight. And it's Friday right now, so I think I think it's going up tonight. It might be, it might be Monday. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I was a guest, um, and the... And it's a history podcast, by the way. It's a podcast about figures throughout history. And the life and triumphs and scandals and all those sort of things. So people like, uh, like I think he has something like a 10-part series on Julius Caesar, you know. So, But, you know, he, the, he uh, Matt hit me up and... I was like, hey, we're going to do an episode on uh, Frank Dukes. And I was like, hey, I know who that guy is. <laughs> and um, Frank Dukes, of course, was a uh, this uh, ultimate badass martial artist guy, allegedly, who the uh, 1988 Jean-Claude film Bloodsport was based on. It's about this... CIA agent who uh, competes in this underground, no rules martial arts tournament in uh, China and uh, <laughs> you know, it's 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 fucking awesome. In terms of 80s action films, like Bloodsport's great. I like, I grew up with that shit and, but the character of Frank Dukes has just been you know, as time and information and, you know, uh, the the sp- the Internet's being able to spread information quickly and efficiently and people being able to fact-check people's claims. Uh, Frank Dukes uh, seems to have turned out to be a complete charlatan in his uh, his claims of... Being in this, you know, a, a covert oper- operator in the, you know, the military, his, his his service in Vietnam and the CIA, and you know, winning. Um, what, what was his martial arts record? I think he said it was three hundred and twenty nine and zero. It's a pretty good record, but. Um, But there's no there's no record anywhere of any of these actual any of these any of these wins any of these tournaments anything and there's no record of him winning the Congressional Medal of Honor there's no record of him serving in Vietnam even though he signed up for the military when the Vietnam War was over you know uh, there's you know the guy has uh the guy, as time goes on frank dukes's frank dukes's reputation um gets worse and worse but it was a it was a really fun episode um about a fucking fucked up kooky weird dude who uh conned hollywood into thinking he's like fucking you know it's, He's fucking James Bond or something. 
But uh, it was a fun episode. I mean, I uh, you know I think it's going to come out very very soon. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, again, that's Iconoblast Podcast. They um, you can find them on YouTube. You can find them on all podcasting platforms. Um, they're on YouTube on the Drinking Bros History. That's Drinking with No G Bros B R O S History uh, channel on on YouTube. So you can, in case you don't know what I look like, you'll see what I look like. <laughs> So I'm wearing my awesome maniac cop shirt I got from Paul Bearer Press out in out here in Austin. But I had a good old time. So uh yeah, again, please check that out. And thanks again to Matt and Joel over at Iconoblast. Really appreciate it. Had a good time. Well, I'm gonna get out of here. I will catch you all on the next one. And you can check me out on Instagram at skeleton underscore factory. This is the Skeleton Factory Podcast. I am Adam, rescuing your movie night one movie at a time. Till next time. Good night.